Well, if uh, I know uh, Chris, you know, talks about it, if you're kind of in the dull drums, you know, we just come through Christmas and, you know, that, that spiritual high and kind of looking for direction, um, I would encourage you, these uh, next couple of weeks, uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after that, um, we're going to have some exciting things uh, revealed. Next week, we're going to kind of have the kickoff for our sanctuary project. Uh, you know, we, we kind of done a lot of work last year. We had the vote the presentation. It's kind of been sitting there through Christmas. Uh, but we're going to ramp this thing up uh, next Sunday, and it's going to be exciting. And then the Sunday after that, um, as I've normally done every year in January, I usually do a kind of a State of the Union address, a State of the Church address, and we're going to talk, be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what God has done in the past, doing some rejoicing, and then some vision um, down in the future, some things that God is looking uh, to do within the church. And so um, you... you if you can be here, you want to be here for those things. I know, you know, with sickness online, uh, I've about headed up to here with COVID, and anybody gets a sniffle, rightly so, they stay home, but it, it, just, it just affects everything. And I'm, I'm hoping that for the next two sermons, at least after that, that we can have our body of Christ together and we move forward into the new year uh, together in these things. Um, today... We're going to take the final look at the, the bibliology um, study of the Bible that we've been looking at over the last couple months. We've been in and out of it, um, looking at it, and this is going to be the, the fifth look that we've taken at it. If you remember, we've, we've, we've kind of gone through a lot of things concerning the Bible. We've talked about the revelation of Scripture, that this book... God has revealed himself to us. This is a revelation of God. He is telling us things about him that we would not have known if he had not have told us. We could have guessed, we could perceive, but God has told us the truth of who he is here. We've looked at inspiration, how God miraculously breathed into men his word that, you know, that, that the author of the Bible is God, although he used men and we looked at how he did that. We talked about the preservation of the Word of God, how God has kept His Word intact over 3,500 years so that today, when you hold that Bible there in your hand, it's accurate, you know, and, and we, we, we have it as accurate as possibly can be to the original autographs. We've seen the proof that this is the Word of God. We talked about prophecy and, and the godness of the Bible and we looked at how the books all kind of came together, the canonizing of Scripture. Uh, also, we looked at the consistency of the message of all these books, how they were written over a 1,500-year period. There were at least 36 different authors, um, all different types of occupations, all different, you know, uh, different time periods. But the, only, the constant that you have is God. And so there's a consistency. There is no discrepancy in the Word of God because the constant is God. So I, I, I kind of have been thinking, how do I want to kind of close this out? And in a very practical way, I want to close this series out with a look at just helping you to understand your Bible a little bit better. And understanding, you know, just the, the basic makeup of the Bible and maybe even how to approach um, the Word of God. Um, I had a Christian, this years and years ago, once asked me, he said, how do you come up with different things to speak on every week? How do you come up with those things to, to preach on every week? And as we got talking about it, it seemed very evident to him, he couldn't think of five different things to talk about God. 
you know, and says, but every, he said, but every week you come and oh, oh, yeah, okay. And, you know, there's something different every week that you're talking about God. You know, there, there, there's a different angle. Well, the answer to that question for us is it's an issue of depth. How deep do you desire to relate to your God? You see, some Christians are very one-dimensional or, or two-dimensional. You know, just, just tell me that Christ died for my sins. Just tell me how to be saved. Tell me that Jesus loves me. That's all I need. I had one Christian that they go to church to get their toes stepped on. They wanted to be yelled at. You know, told a dirty, rotten sinner they were. And they didn't, I guess they didn't get enough of that at home. Uh, so they needed to get into that church. Uh, but, uh, you know, those are dimensions of our faith. But they're very one-dimensional. I mean, think about it like this. How many of you here, my guess is everybody here has been to a 3D movie, you know, the ones that you go to and you put the glasses on and suddenly everything comes to life and it's all right there. Um, you know, it's like being part of what is happening. I mean, it's amazing just to add that one dimension between a 2D, which is basically a picture, and, and 3D, you know, add one more dimension. It's a matter of depth. And the more dimensions that you have in your faith, in your interaction with God, the more depth is involved, the more real it is, and it will feel to you. And God has given us so many dimensions on which to know him and interact with him and to experience him. We can do it through creation. We do it through sin, through our salvation, through prophecy, through love, through heaven, uh, finances, trials, child-rearing, you know, uh, marriage, hope, perseverance, how to live in this world, mercy, spiritual gifts, forgiveness. There are so many things, hundreds of them, all revealed in this book on ways that you can, in every day, interact with God. And they just give it, it a fullness, you know, not just a, a, a two-dimensional. God revealed all of these things for a purpose of giving depth to our relationship with him. They're not just fillers till we get to the parts we're interested in. I just love it when you talk about prophecy, you know, and end times, you know, but all that other stuff. No, God has given them to us for a purpose. And the more we can interact with that in, the, in, in, in God's word, the deeper, the fuller Christians we will be. So let's look at some practical understandings of the Bible. Well, let's focus on the depth that we can just understand this book that God has given us just a little bit more. Let's talk about some practical understandings. Um, we briefly mentioned a few weeks ago that the chapters and the verses and even the titles of the book were not part of the original writing. Okay, so in other words, Paul didn't sit down and write Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, da 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 da. Chapter 1, verse 2, da, 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 and he, write out. he didn't do that. Most of the books that you have here, and it's important for you to understand this, they were written in a letter form, just like you would write a letter to somebody else. Uh, we can take the example of Titus. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to to godliness. Go down to verse 4. It says, To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ 
our Savior. So you kind of have a heading. You know, Paul, he's identifying himself. And then he talks to Titus. This, this is to you, Titus. I'm, I'm writing and I'm speaking to you. And so in the book of Titus, then you have this address into the, you know, who is writing, who is reading it. Then you kind of have the body of the letter. And when you come to the end of the letter, it says in Titus chapter 3, 5, it says, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. And kind of a sending off of a letter. So they're very much written in letter forms and given to us. And that's important for us to understand. To understand. Um, these books that we talk about separately, they were given titles. They weren't originally with titles, but they were given titles. And they're based usually on the reader. Some like the Hebrews, they were the ones who were reading this. Or Titus, you know, an, an individual who was reading it. Or particularly it's written on those who wrote the book, like Luke or Mark or, or, or John. Or sometimes they were given titles based on their content. Like you have the Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's talking about the history and the movement of the apostles within the early church. Or you have like the book of Revelation, which is revealing future events. And that's how we kind of get those, those, those titles. You can even go back into the Old Testament. You have the book of Exodus. It's called Exodus because what does it deal with? An Exodus, okay? The book of Chronicles deals with the chronology of the, of the Jewish people. Um, some of the books, and you may not have known this, some of the books in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, a few of them, have actually been divided in two. Ezra and Nehemiah were actually only one book. But because they deal with two distinct time periods, Ezra dealing with the rebuilding of the temple and Nehemiah dealing with the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, um, they just split those books up and they gave them different titles. But originally they were written as one letter. Uh, the book of Chronicles was actually, First and Second Chronicles used to just be Chronicles. But because it was so long, um, they divided it up. So it'd be easier to reference one, which part of the book that they were actually looking at. Um, we also need to realize that the order that these books have been placed in are not inspired. Okay, the order that these books are placed in, they're not inspired. Originally, these books were individual letters or writings, and they were actually kept on scrolls. They were kept together, but not in any one particular order. You know, they didn't start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but they were just scrolls that were mixed and identified. Um, if you look at Luke chapter 4, uh, when Christ, remember when he went to the temple, in Luke 4 it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And so what we do is we have them all canonized now, but you know, the early church and certainly into the, you know, the Jewish people, you know, these were individual letters that would actually be pulled out um, and, and, and read. Um, the books are, again, they're not ordered by uh, chronology. They're not ordered alphabetically, but they're ordered by category. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up the very front into the index. When it kind of gives you the books, it usually tells you what the page number is and everything. Go ahead and, and open up for just a, a second there. And let me show you how we have the, your Bible has put together, because it does have meaning and purpose together, and that's important for you to understand as you're looking at it. Um, so the, here are some basic broad strokes of the categories of Scripture. Um, in the first 17 books of the Bible, 
in the Old Testament is the Old Testament history. So if you go from Genesis to the book of Esther, that gives you all of the Old Testament history. All right, very important for you to understand. Okay, then the next five books of the Bible, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those are called poetical books. They were written by David, um, and most of them by David and Solomon. Okay, and then you have the prophetic books, and there's 17 of those that come at the very end of the Bible, all the way from, from Isaiah to Malachi. Those are the prophetic books. The poetical books and the prophetic books all happen during the first 17 books of history. And it's talking about the Jewish people and creation and all. All of those things happen in those first 17 books. And again, that's important for us to understand. Um, you get to the New Testament, and then you have Matthew through the book of Acts. That gives you your New Testament history. And then you have your doctrinal books, which are Romans through the book of Jude. There are 21 of those. And then you have your prophetic book. It ends with the book of Revelation. And that's how they're categorized. Again, the, the New, Testament, New Testament history books, particularly the book of Acts, all those doctrinal books are written during that time in the book of Acts. As the, as the apostles are out on their missionary journeys, God is putting together the New Testament. Um, Let's go over real quickly, again, I'm going to be jumping around here just to, to talk about the Bible here, but I want to go over some biblical terms that you hear, and my guess is sometimes you hear these things, and you say, mm-hmm, and you have no idea what we're talking about, you know, you just kind of agree, and nobody, you know, wants to think, wow, I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I don't know what that means, uh, so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you whether you need them or not, um, you know, just to kind of help us out. Uh, the, you, you've heard us talk about, from time to time, they talk about the Torah. The Torah is the law, and it deals with the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Exodus. And it's very interesting, you've heard of the bar mitzvahs of the you know, Jewish people and their education, and when they're 13 years old, they're bar mitzvahed. There is so much emphasis put on these first five books of the Bible um, before they're bar mitzvahed. Many of them are memorized, these books, um, and certainly they are well taught. They were well taught to the Jewish people. We have a New Testament term. Um, you hear the epistles. We talk about the epistles. Um, and you've heard this before. The epistles are not the wives of the apostles, you know. But epistle, it basically means a formal letter. So when we're talking about the epistle of Philippians or the epistle of Galatians, we're talking about a formal letter that has been written, you know, to those people. We use the word gospel. You know, we talk about the four gospels. Um, the gospel is something that is accepted as true. So who can guess here? We have a saying that flows out from this. What do we say? Does anyone know what the saying is? It's the gospel truth. And that's what it means. That's what the word gospel means for us. It means truth. This is the true story of Christ's life. When you talk about the four gospels, it's giving you the truth. Um, we talk in very general terms. We reference the Old Testament and the New Testament and for a lot of us, it's just a dividing place in the Bible and, and, and where to look up the books and all of that. Um, but it's more important than that. The word testament means a will or a covenant. It was a binding document, particularly in the Old Testament times. So when you say Old Testament, when we're referring to the Old Testament and all of those books, this is God's covenant. This is God's will 
with the world, that he was going to call out a people from this world to pour himself into, to reveal himself to the world, and ultimately through these people that a Savior was going to come who was going to die for the sins of the world. That's a covenant. It's, that's what a testament is. It's, it's a binding contract. So, you know, we read these you know, we read these things and, you know, we pull out this chapter or this verse and it's meaningful to us. You know, to God, he is literally writing a binding contract to us of what he was going to do through the Jewish people and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then you come to the New Testament. The New Testament is God's covenant with the world um, now that the Old Testament has been fulfilled. So the Jewish people have been called out and the Savior has come through the Jew Jewish people. And so now we have a New Testament that God has made with us. And again, we just say Old Testament and New Testament without realizing that these are, these are legal contracts that God is making with us. He chose to call them testaments because they are binding contracts. He has bound himself to say this is what he is going to do. What God says he will do, he says, I am going to do it. So think about this in terms, and I, again, we just use the word Old Testament, New Testament. We don't really think about, you know, the power of what is happening that God is giving us through these things. But just, just for a moment, think about this book, this message, as God's promise to you, as God's promise to the world of what he's going to do. And then picture Jesus Christ. You know, he's on this earth. He's coming towards the end of his ministry. He's sitting with his disciples, you know, moments, hours before his crucifixion. It's the Passover. It's, it's the Last Supper. Think of that significance as Jesus is there with these disciples who are going to be used to, to carry that gospel message out into the world. And he reaches for that cup of wine, which is a symbol of the Passover lamb's shed blood. And he says in, in Luke 22, verse 20, it says, In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. He is sealing this covenant. He is sealing this testament. This promise, is, he is saying, is going to be sealed in my blood that is going to be shed upon the cross. I mean, does that not give you a depth and understanding of as you're reading these promises and these, these things in God's word on how true they are and how sure they are that they're going to come to be and that this is what God wants in our life? Jesus Christ says, I'm going to seal that in my blood. Christ shed blood is a payment for our sins, but it's also God's seal of promise of what the New Testament says is going to come for believers. In Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 15, it says, For this reason he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal life. That death, that shedding that blood, that sealing of the covenant. Again, these terms become so common to us, but they are so powerful, the truth and the meaning that stands behind them. And that Old Testament, that covenant that God had made, and now that New Testament in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ, those two covenants are in perfect harmony with each other. I mean, I have some people say, well, I don't read the Old Testament a lot. You know, the Old Testament is, you know, it's for back then. You know, it's not really 
for today. Well, that is not true. The Old Testament is for today. The Old Testament is relevant to your life today. Um, the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation was simply the means that God was communicating himself to the world. Just like the church, us. We are God's mode of reaching the world today. You know, there are some promises in the Old Testament that are specifically for the Jewish people. And so, yeah, okay, those things may not necessarily apply to us, but there are some principles. You know, there's some practices that we don't have, like the sacrifices that stopped once Christ came and was the final sacrifice for our sins. So, yeah, those things are true. But the Old Testament, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. Um, kind of an interesting thing that you might find for studying purpose, I often find that the New Testament has a way of simply saying a truth. But that truth that has been said to us, I can often go to the Old Testament and see what it looks like. So in the Bible, excuse me, in the New Testament, it talks about perseverance, you know, Christian persevering, you know, through trials, how he uses those trials and our perseverance to, to strengthen our hope and our purpose and all of those sorts of things. Well, I can go to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth, and, and talk about the kinsman, or excuse me, I can go to the book of Job and talk about Job's perseverance and trials and the character and, and how it developed him. So what the New Testament says, the Old Testament has actually often given us a, a flesh and blood example of it. We, we talk about that Christ is our redeemer, you know, a term that we don't use a lot of. Well, go to the Old Testament, go to the book of Ruth. You know, look at what the kinsman redeemer was. And suddenly you begin to get a depth of what that term is of our redemption and Christ our redeemer. You know, we have the biblical truth that, that as a Christian that Christ saves us from our sin. But though Christ saves us from our sin, obedience and joy in that Christian life is a matter of obedience. And that's something that's taught throughout the New Testament. Well, if I want to, I can go back to the Old Testament and I can look at Israel. Israel, who was taken out of the bondage of Egypt, they were taken out of Egypt, and they were taken into, ultimately, you know, to, to, in the wilderness to go to the promised land. Certainly, their obedience or disobedience to God determined whether they were going to enjoy that freedom that God had given them. Now, we know that Israel disobeyed, so they didn't have a lot of joy, ultimately, in the wilderness, but God never sent them back to Egypt because of their disobedience. So once we are saved, once Christ has truly forgiven us and we have accepted that into our heart, you know, we may have ups and downs, but we're not going to lose our salvation. Christ never sent Israel back to Egypt. Okay, the last area, and probably the most important area this morning, deals with how to interpret the Bible. Okay? How do we understand what it's saying? And I, and I want to give you something, something very simple. I'm not going to try to give you some sort of a, a doctrinal thesis of how to study the Bible and intricately doing all the words for the. I want to give you some, some practical things that you can do in your Bible reading to help you get depth in your Word of God, in, in the Word of God. Um, I got to say, I sometimes shudder at how some take, people take God's Word and then they say, this is what it says, and then they go off and they apply it, really with not much concern of what it's really saying. Um, there's people out there who allegorically interpret Scripture, all of Scripture. 
You know, an allegory is a symbol, and that everything in Scripture is a symbol of something else. Yes, there are a lot of symbols, but everything is a symbol. A, a symbol. Uh, but that's how they interpret everything. Some interpret Scripture culturally, you know, in trying to fit Scripture, God's Word, into the culture in which we live, instead of trying to take our culture and fitting it into the Bible, you know, that, the, the, the truth of the Bible and having it determine what we do or not do. Um, you know, some want to emotionally interpret Scripture of how it makes them feel. I get this a lot, and we are into a new year's, and I haven't heard this yet, but I have heard people claiming a verse. And, and again, I'm not knocking claiming a verse or that, but they always claim a verse, something like Psalm 22, verse 6. I claim that verse. It says, may they prosper who love you. That's my verse for the year. May they prosper who love you. I'm just going to love God, and, and, and he's going to prosper me. I'm claiming that verse for God. My question is, how do you know that God's verse for you isn't Romans 5.3 that says, but we exalt in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance? Nobody seems to ever claim those verses. You know, we always want to claim the prosper, you know, and all of those sorts of things. So, so we have to be very careful. It's important how we interpret uh, Scripture. Um, a while ago, I listened to a tape by a Mennonite pastor uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it was teaching on why, a, why they believe, the Mennonite church believes, that women should always have their heads covered. Um, and again, I, I don't want to get into whether we do this or not doing it right now. I don't want to get into that. But what I want to get into is how he dealt with that passage of Scripture. It was an example of why it's, it's very important to have good hermeneutics, good understanding of, of the Bible and what it says and how to interpret it. So the verses he was looking at, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give them to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 5, we're going to put them up there. And I'm going to put them up there in the King James. It says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep, keep the ordinances as I have delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, he dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all as one as if she were shaven. Now the application he made from these verse is that women should have their heads covered. But that application is not consistent with the interpretation of that whole passage of Scripture. Look at verse 4. It says, every man praying. Okay, we're easy to focus on verse 5. Everyone praying or prophesying with their head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Okay, well, how about verse 4? Do we not interpret that the same way we just interpreted verse 5? Verse 4 says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head uncovered, dishonoreth his head. So in other words, if men wear hats, if we cover our head, you know, that, that, that would be dishonoring to the Lord, just like a woman having her head uncovered. Um, you know, they don't interpret verse 4 the same way they interpret verse 5. Uh, and again, verse 5 actually only says, you know, cover the head while praying and prophesying. It never says that they should have their head covered all the time. But the speaker said, and this is his application, he said, well, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we're to pray without ceasing. So women should always be in prayer and always have their head covers. 
And that's how they make the connection, and they, they practice it in the Mennonite church. Well, shouldn't that same interpretation go for men? That men should be praying without ceasing, we should always be in the attitude of prayer, so we should never have our heads covered, that we shouldn't wear a hat. And, and, and again, if you know the, the Mennonite or the, the Amish, uh, you know, and you know any of them, the men always have hats and the women have coverings. But the, the, there's not an accurate, a consistent interpretation. That's just dangerous Bible interpretation. That's manipulating it to say what we want it to say. Now, I'm going to interpret this portion of Scripture for you when we get to the end. I want to show you some of the applications I'm going to give you here, and so we'll give you a little answers here. Um, I want to real quickly here, I want to give you five keys to accurately interpreting what Scripture is saying. Five keys. And this morning I was looking over my notes and I thought, oh, shoot, I have another one. So I'm going to give you a bonus. So this is, a, this is, this is the 1A. It's not listed in, in, your, uh, in your outline here. Um, so this is, this is 1A. If the Bible is inspired, and we've already showed that the Bible is inspired Word of God, if it is without error, then the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. The Bible explains itself. If you look at any major topic of Scripture or of our faith, you know, heaven, salvation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, any of those major topics, they are taught numerous and numerous times in so many books, almost every single book of the Bible has something about it. So when you come to a difficult portion of Scripture and you say, wow, you know, I don't understand this, or this sounds like it might be you know, saying something different, the best way to interpret it is with other Scripture on the exact same subject. So if you're looking at the subject of grace, you know, when you come to a difficult portion, look up all the other portions of grace and the teachings of grace. There's a consistency. God's Word's inspired. It does not contradict itself. So the best way is to measure it against itself. Okay, so that's the bonus one, okay? Let me give you five keys now that, that are listed for you there in your bulletin. Number one, and the first, we're going to go a little slower, and then we'll give you the other ones real quickly here. Number one, interpret the Bible in light of its historical content. Interpret the Bible in light of its historical content. And I would say interpret the book that you're reading in light of its historical content. In other words, it's important for you to know what's going on in history that might help you understand this scripture. A good example of that, if you read in the Old Testament and you read the minor prophets, you know, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Amos, those, those minor prophets, if you don't understand the context in which they were written and what was going on in history at that time, it's very easy as you read those books because they're full of a lot of condemnation a lot of warnings, there's a lot of judgments taking place. If you don't realize that they were written over a 200-year period where Israel has fallen away from God, and so these books were written as warnings to them to call them back, to, you know, to say this is going to happen if you don't repent and turn back to God. Again, if you don't kind of understand the context of what, what is happening here, that Israel is falling away. You read these books and you just come across, well, God is very judgmental. He, he's, he's very, very harsh. I mean, we said that God gave us the Bible, these biblical books, over a 1,500-year time period. He didn't give us in 
all these books in one time period. So it stands to reason that we should understand the historical context that God chose to deliver that message. He could have delivered that message any other time, but he chose that time. So it has to be important. So we need to look at that. Um, a good example of that is in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To understand, again, what the readers of 1 Peter are going through. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. So we know from history, if you, if you just do a little bit of study and go a little bit deeper, that this letter was written to Christians who had fled the persecution in Rome and Jerusalem, or, or excuse me, in Rome, and they are living now scattered under very difficult circumstances. And they were scattered as they fled Rome. I mean, they, they planted all over. They don't have the, they don't have the uh, you know, bedrock of the family and their jobs and everything. They're going into strange cultures, you know, different languages. So it's important to know this, to understand that these readers, this is who Peter is, is writing to. This is what's going on in their lives. And understanding that helps you when you get down to uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, when he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Here are people who had lost their earthly inheritance. They had lost their homes, they had lost their jobs, they had lost their lands, they had lost it all. Does it not a little bit more meaning where God is saying you have an inheritance to come? You know, no matter what it is that this life has cost you, focus on the inheritance that God has for you. Go down to chapter, verse, chapter 2, verse 4, same book. It says, coming to him as a living stone who has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Here he's using that same example of how Christ was rejected. But that precious place in the sight of God and how they can make that connection, they have been rejected. They have been outcast, but precious in the sight of God. Verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into that marvelous light. I mean, you don't think that made a difference knowing that these people who are reading it, you know, I mean, they're not feeling very special. But God, God says, you're chosen. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own purpose. I mean, again, this, this is giving it dimension. This is making it 3D, 4D, 5D. And the, the more you can understand this, how these people are taking this and how they would respond to those words, Versus you and I, you know, living in Clark County and having nice homes. We have nice jobs to go to and, you know, we have food on the table and we have friends and all of these sorts of things. You know, understanding how they were reading it, you think it's going to give you a little bit more depth. It says down there later on in verse uh, 11 and 12, Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
In other words, here's, here's a challenge to them. Yeah, you may be aliens. You may be strangers. You may be living in a different culture. There are going to be a whole set of temptations, just like you and I have, as we go out into the world that is now ours. We have those temp same temptations, those same lusts which rage war against our soul. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, amongst the unbelievers. Again, this is all just giving depth. Okay? So interpret it in, in the light of the history, history that is taking place. Okay? Closely tied to this, number two, interpret the Bible in light of the author's purpose and plan. These books, the, the human authors who were used by God, they, they didn't just ramble, and you know, they, they were writing these things for a purpose. I mean, Christ said you know, that he came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. You know, so every word, every concept, everything is inspired and, and everything is important. And so every single book has a purpose that it was written. And so if you decide for your devotions that you're going to, you know, whatever, read this book of the Bible, you know, for this week, um, knowing the purpose that it was written ahead of time will help you understand the message. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.10. How do you understand? What, what's 1 Corinthians all about? Well, it says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So as you're reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going to come to all sorts of passages that are talking about Christian unity, about not being divided. Remember, that's the book where some were saying, I'm of a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. You know, it talks there that the church is a body, that we're all important. And so, so the purpose of this book is Christian unity. And so as I'm reading things, interpret in the light of the purpose that's been written. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, it says, I want to understand, what's the purpose of the book of Galatians? He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So the book of Galatians, we know, and as you follow through the whole book of Galatians, is to correct their, their doctrinal heresy that they were being taught, and some of them were accepting it. Again, so as you start reading those things and even applying those, you need to understand um, the purpose. Now, I've been going for some time here. I'm only on number two. I can almost hear some of you thinking, well, that's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work to find out all these things. I just want to read the Bible. I just want to read the Bible. Well, again, folks, this is an issue of depth. The more you put into it, the deeper your Christian lives and the relationship with God are going to become. You know, if you think about it, in part, that's why Christian churches, you know, they go to great length to have a full-time pastor. I am blessed. I count it a great privilege that part, a good part of what I'm called to do is to study and to go deeper and, and to discover these nuggets of truth and, and hopefully to be able to, you know, to, to come and give them you know, to you. But again, the more you can do it on your own, you know, even these, these, these you know, broad stroke types of things, um, you know, not everything that I would do in studying something, but, but, but the deeper you can go, the more you can understand it, the, the, the greater impact it will have on you. For just this message today, um, I had seven different resources were used. 
uh, plus past studies that I've done, past conferences that I've gone to, and a lot of it I took from my schooling that I had and my master's degree. Um, as a pastor, I've been blessed. I've been able to go to Israel, um, you know, to actually see and experience things that we talk about. And, and all of this gives me a deeper understanding, a broader dimension with God. And I want to continually be growing. And I communicate it to you. And, and I want to encourage you to, to seek that depth as well with you and the Word of God. Not just wait till, you know, to be fed it, and okay, he says it, I believe it, but, but to search the Word of God. You know, apply these things. Look about the history, the purpose of the books. I mean, we live in an age where there are so many resources that are quickly and easily at your fingertip. Now, he's not here today, but Scott Schieferstein sits down in that front row. And I guarantee you, anything I say that is remotely controversy, I see him on his phone <laughs> checking it out and searching it. And when I say this word means this, and, and he does. You know, he's, he's shared that with me. And, 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 and praise God. I mean, we live in the day and age that you can get on your computer, you can put anything in. you got to be careful of the sources that you use. Um, you know, and you cert yeah, certainly that you can be misled there. But there's so much at your fingertip, concordances and word studies and, and commentaries that can, can help give you this. Again, the more you include these things in you, the more real your faith is going to be to you. Okay, let's move a little bit quicker here. Number three. Interpret Bible verses in the light of their context. Interpret Bible verses in the light of their context. One of the things that drives me the craziest when somebody takes a verse out of its context, you know, and by itself it may seem to support what they're saying, but you put it back in its context, it's not saying it at all. Um, I, I was helping uh, a Christian once who was talking to me about baptism, and they were, you know, somebody was telling them they had to be baptized to be saved. And the verse that they used, uh, you know, said, they, they quoted it, and they said, baptism saves us. And he said, you know, what do I do with that? And I said, well, let's look it up. And we looked it up, said, baptism saves us, not the washing with water, but the, you know, and it was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to that, but taking something so out of context. So when you have a verse of the Bible that you're looking at, if you're going to look to apply it, Make sure it fits in the context of what is being said. Um, think of it like this. When you write a Christmas letter, we just came through Christmas, um, you send it to all your families and friends. Your purpose of the Christmas letter is to let everybody know what went on in their life this past year. Okay? All right? And so, so, so there are numerous paragraphs in that. When my wife, she writes a Christmas letter... Um, you know, the, the main purpose is to let you know what's going on in the Marvel family. And so she starts in the paragraph, and she talks about, you know, what's going on in her life, what God did this past year. Then she talks about what went on in my life, and then what went on in some of our kids' lives and our grandkids' lives. But each of them are under that main heading of, you know, kind of what's going on in our life. But each paragraph, like the one that is, you know, talks about what I did this past year, you know, uh, any surgeries I had or, you know, anything that happened with deer hunting or blessings or trials, any of those things, it all pertains, every line pertains to the subject of that paragraph, which is what's going on in my personal life. Um, in those paragraphs, there are numerous sentences. Each sentence builds on the paragraph, and the paragraph builds on the whole of the understanding of the letter. So, in your Bibles... 
one of the things that would help you the most when you're reading a verse and trying to understand it is to find the paragraphs. Remember that these books were written as letters. They didn't have divisions like we have placed in them, you know, for our convenience. They were written just like a letter is written. So they have paragraphs, they have sentences, and they have structures. The paragraph and the sentence structure, sometimes they're harder to find because we've divided it up with, you know, with letters into verses. But if some of your Bibles, like mine, um, actually separate the paragraphs, just like you would in a letter, you see the indentation. Some of them don't do that. And that's going to be a little more difficult. Some of them have a little asterisk by, you'll see by your verse, that means that's the start of a new paragraph. Um, but anyway, how, however, you need to find the paragraph. Finding the paragraphs and understanding its whole will help you understand the verse. Okay? Number four, and I'll give you these two real quick. Number four, interpret the Bible within the author's meaning of the words. Interpret the Bible within the original author's meanings of the words. And we talked about this earlier. This means going back and making sure that the English translation accurately portrays what we are reading. That, you know, in Greek or in Hebrew, what was written, that, that that's actually what the author is saying. In a moment, I'm going to show you why that's real important. Okay? Number five, then, interpret the Bible according to grammar. And this, again, this is getting a lot deeper here. Um, you know, just like in the English, you have sentence structures, how words relate to each other and tie into each other. All of those things are important. Verbs, nouns, you know, transitional statements, all of them are important. A sentence starts with the word therefore. What's the first thing you say? You say, why is it therefore? It's talking about the previous thing, and this is kind of a result of that because of this. It's saying all those words are important uh, for you to look at. So, so if you take those five and, and you look at them, you can see how we start with a big picture and we kind of narrow it down. You know, the first thing, interpret it historically. That's kind of a big picture, what's going on, you know, in Israel's history at this time or in the New Testament history. Then talk about the, the specific book's purpose. If it was written to a region, what's going on in that region and, and the purpose for which it was written. Then we talk about the context of the paragraphs and the sentence structure. Then we talk about the actual meaning of the words and then how the words all relate to one another. You know, it, 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 it's, you know these all give you a little bit more depth. So I want to I close. I know I'm a little over here, but I know you guys want me to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 5 to know whether or not women should have their heads covered and men should be able to wear hats. So that's what we're going to do real quickly here. I want to show you how this all works together. So we have 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 5. We already uh, read that out of the King James. Um, let, let, let's see what this is mean. How do we interpret it to find out actually what it's saying? Okay, step one, historically. Okay, what is going on in, in Corinth? Um, we know that Corinth is located on a thin land pass between Greece and Macedonian Achaia. It also, so it's a, it's a land port, but it also had water on both sides of it, so it was also a water port. And so it's a tremendously prosperous uh, city. And as a result of that, they have all sorts of cultures and countries are passing through them, and some of the people, you know, stop and they settle, and with all of those people, they're going to be coming a lot of traditions, 
a lot of beliefs. Step two, what's the purpose of the book of 1 Corinthians? We, we said it was to do what? To promote church unity. So this church is splintering over all sorts of issues. You know, what men lend them to Christ, separation issues from the world, lawsuits, marriage, Christian liberties. Okay, but the purpose is there's divisions. The context of this portion, portion Paul is teaching concerning certain external practices of the day that reflect an honor of the wives to their husbands and ultimately the husbands to Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's the truth that is there. The question we have would be, is this instruction for today? Is this instruction, what he's telling us in the application of this, is this for today? So let's deal with the women's head coverings. All right? Step four. The meaning of the words. Let me read verse 2. And if you, have a, if you don't have a King James, it's, it's a little bit different here. But it says there, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I have delivered to you. So Paul is talking and he's going to talk about these ordinances. So it seems to me it's very important for us to learn what that word ordinances mean. And we talk about the ordinances of the church. What are they? Baptism and communion. So is he giving us another ordinance here to go along with baptism and communion? What does that word mean in the original? Not how does it translate to English, but what does it mean in the original? Well, the Greek word is paradosis, and it means precept or tradition, okay, or tradition. So how do I know it means tradition like we think of tradition here? Well, we said let the Bible interpret itself. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, go ahead and put that up there. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with the corruptible things of silver or gold from your vain conversations received by tradition from their fathers. In other words, he's saying you weren't saved for you know, the, the, the rabbinical laws that they had added to you. You're not saved by the, the traditions of man. That traditions word there is, is, is very much taught. Uh, excuse me, that word is talking about traditions. It's interpreted, it's the exact same word, paradosis. So we know it's talking about traditions. Again, so see, the Bible is helping us interpret something that's difficult. Okay, now I know he's speaking about cultural traditions. He's not speaking about biblical matters. Now that I know that, I can look at the text and see what I can glean from it. So the text says, and we'll go back to it, go back to uh, the text if you would. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. He goes on. Every man praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So let me summarize this. Paul is expressing that there are certain external cultures, certain external acts that may not be biblical, but they do express an honoring of man to God and a, a woman to her husband. That's what he's talking about there. The truth we can take out of there is that man to honor God, woman to honor her husband. That's what it's talking about here. 
And one of the traditions that they handed down there was concerning the coverings of their head when they prayed or the men making sure that their head was uncovered when they prayed. There was nothing magical about those. That was a tradition. It was a cultural way of them showing um, you know, honor you know, to, to Christ or to their husbands. Um, today, we don't have head coverings as in biblical times. We don't have that as a tradition necessarily that's been handed down. Um, and, it, and, and it had a practical application in the New Testament. Um, in Bible times, prostitutes made known their availability by uncovering their heads. So they would uncover their heads and make everybody know that, you know, that they were working the streets at that time. And so, so this, this covering their heads and, you know, or keeping your head uncovered when you prayed or prophesied, suddenly it, you, were, you were like a prostitute that was making themselves available. So it wasn't honoring to their husbands. So we don't have that tradition today, but we do still have ways that we dress that might be inappropriate, you know, that emphasize our sexuality and not their beauty, you know, take upon their bodies symbols of this rebellion like a, a prostitute would. You know, it's all about an, an attitude. There's ways that, you know, a wife might dress in public that would be dishonoring to her husband, just like there are ways in our culture today, you know, that, that men can dress and act, not as men, but that would be dishonoring to God. And that is what this, this portion, this is all that you can take out of this portion that is teaching about there's ways that for, for wives to honor your husbands, for God, or for men to honor God. And he's just talking about a cultural tradition, a way to do that. And we take away from that, what are our cultural traditions? How can I do that? You know, wives to make sure, you know, that the ways that you are honoring your husband, men make sure that, the, that, that you are their external ways that people can see in your life that you are honoring God, that, that God is, is your head. Again, if I don't interpret this correctly, you're going to miss a dimension that God is calling us to interact with him, you know. So that's why it's important that we accurately interpret these things. So I'm going to close here. Um, it's just my prayer going forth from here that you will seek to know God in a deeper way. Um, you know, at the very least, if you want a simple first step, you know, just, just get a good commentary and keep it next to your Bible. So when you read things, you can go and look at the commentary and, and some of the things of the word studies or even the cultural things, they're, they're laid out for you right there. And, 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 and again, the deeper and deeper and deeper you go, the more dimensions uh, your relationship with God will have. Let's pray. Father God, I so thank you. Just that even you would want to interact with me. I can't even comprehend that that is your heart's desire for me to know you in a personal way, for me to include you in my life in every single aspect. And Father, I pray for each and every believer here. Lord, we're starting a new year. Maybe some new practices or new habits. God, I just pray that we will look to have a deeper relationship with you. Father, not to, to coast in on our laurels, but Father, that this time next year we'll be able to visibly look at the growth in our life. Thank you for your word. Thank you that when we open this book that we stand upon 
a solid rock. In thy name we pray. Amen. Thank you.